ಬಂದಿದೆ ಬಂದಿದೆ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಹಿರಿಯರೇ ಇತರ ರಾಜಾರಾಣಿ ಹತ್ತೋಣ ನಾವು ಅವರ ನೆನಪಿನ ದೋಣಿ ಕೇಳುತ್ತಾ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಖುಷಿ ಪಡೋಣ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿ ಇದು ಹಿರಿಯರ ಕತೆ ಹಿರಿಯರ ಜೊತೆ ನಿಮ್ಮ ಹಿರಿಯರ ವಾಣಿಯಲ್ಲಿ ಕೇಳ್ತಾನೆ ಇರಿ ಖುಷಿಯಾಗಿರಿ Hello listeners this is your RJ Chandana and I welcome you all to Anubhav a joint project of National Institute of Social Defense Ministry of Social Justice and Empowerment Government of India and Media for Community Foundation implemented by Nightingale's Medical Trust project conceived by Dr Ashridhar project investigator Alok Verma coordinators Pooja Murada Sai Sudha and Kaushalya Government of India has initiated an elder line toll free number 14567 Elders or anyone on behalf of elders can call between morning 8am to 8pm for any questions, queries and support to elderly. Yeah, a big welcome and good morning to all of you. Of course, we are all ready and eager to listen to the scintillating raconteur and effervescent communicator Rupa Pai. She has some explosive ideas and little known facts after deep research into the labyrinth of the medical field. its origins journey and usage her inimitable and punchy expressions are awesome to put it mildly when she speaks rest assured that you will be bowled over by her knowledge and smooth articulation her book geeta for children is a must for every adult live alone children the characters are brought alive and kicking into our lives she will leave us asking for more and more Rupa Pai is one of India's best known writers for children. The Bangalore based author has written over 25 books ranging from picture books to chapter books, fiction to non-fiction on themes as varied as sci-fi fantasy, popular science, math, history, economics, Indian philosophy, life skills and most recently medicine. Many of her books are best sellers and enjoyed by one and all. Her most popular books include the eight part Terranauts India's first fantasy adventure series for children in English Ready 99 must have skills for the world conquering teenager and almost teenager the award winning national best seller the Geeta for children listed by Amazon India as one of 100 books to be read in a lifetime and its prequel the Vedas and Upanishads for children her TED talk decoding the Geeta India's Book of Answers has received over 1.8 million reviews to date. Her most recent book for children is Leeches to Slug Glue, 25 explosive ideas that made and are making modern medicine. Now, this is the book. I have it with me here. It's a wonderful book. You must, all of you get it and read it. She has received rave reviews from our very own Dr. Devi Shetty for this piece of work. She has co-authored fitness evangelist and supermodel Milind Soman's memoir Made in India and is currently working on a book of poetry in translation in which she is translating 100 poems of the much acclaimed Kannada poet Padmashri K.S. Nisar Ahmed in English. When she is not writing, Rupa can be found leading groups of children and young people on history and heritage walks across her beloved Karnataka 
as part of her job as a director of a company, she co-founded with her husband, Arun Pai, Bangalore Vox. As Rupa herself claims, she is a writer who has carried on a long-time love affair with her hometown, Bangalore. Now, this is just about a brief introduction to this ever-talented and effervescent uh, Rupa Pai. Over to you now, Rupa. It's all your, yours now. Thank you. Namaste, Ushanti. That was like so, so wonderful, the introduction that I... I fear that I will not be able to live up to this image you built up that I'm so effervescent and intelligent. And okay, anyway, I shall try my best. Also, um, you know, I, I, it was me that suggested to Ushanti that maybe a book on my book on medicine, I could talk about that, this subject. Because, okay, I must go back in time a little to tell you the story. So the, the book actually was written, was published in September 2019. Mm, just before that, uh, I wasn't sure what I had written several other books, the Vedas and Upanishads for Children had come out. And I was looking for something a little out of the philosophy thing, some some kind of a different book I wanted to write. And that's when uh, Penguin approached me and they said, do a book for us. And I said, what subject? And they said, pick your subject, whatever you want. And although I have written a lot of fiction for children, in the recent years, I have moved sort of to nonfiction because I realized that there is a lack of good nonfiction books for children that is Indian, that uses an Indian context. Most of the good nonfiction books for children are American or from somewhere else. Now we have a huge burgeoning uh, collection written by Indian authors for Indian children about Indian heroes, sportsmen, scientists, all that. It's, it's happening right now. But for a long time, when I started writing nonfiction, almost about 10 years ago, there wasn't very much. And once I started writing nonfiction, I enjoyed the process so much because I think what I really enjoy and what I'm good at is research. Research into perhaps just because I'm curious and I find every subject interesting. So I like to do a lot of research, which a lot of other people may not like to do or may not be very good at in the, in the sense of taking some large amounts of data which, that you have to go through during research and converting it into something simple that even children can understand and appreciate, you know. So that seems to be my kind of true skill. So I began to do a lot of that. Now, when Penguin said, you can pick your subject, I thought about it a little and I said, I don't know for what reason. I said, why not medicine? And the editor's jaw sort of hit the ground and she's like, what? A history of medicine for children? Why would they be interested? Can you not think of something a little more you know, happy or a little more interesting. She actually thought it would be boring. Why would you want to know? I mean, especially like, you know, you can write well for children. You can write in a conversational tone. Uh, so let that dry kind of books be left to somebody else. <laughs> Why don't you write something else? But I knew because of my own interest in medicine that there, was, there were wonderful stories to be told and retold in the history of medicine. And why did I know all this? And why was I so interested in medicine? Because my own elder sister is a doctor. And uh, I was a very, at a very impressionable what age. I might have been 14 or something when she started her uh, course in uh, BMC in Bangalore, her B MBBS. And what fascinated, because I've always been a book lover, what fascinated me most about medicine, apart from the fact that she was so passionate about it herself, was were the books 
they were like these giant fat books and they were so beautifully produced that that time when i was 14 you couldn't get beautifully produced books in india they were always foreign books and these were very expensive books but um you know uh, i got to get them for free because my sister had to study them and one i remember in particular is grey's anatomy i'm sure there are some doctors among you who are listening either you are doctors yourselves or married to doctors or have children who are doctors so you're all probably familiar with this grey's anatomy a really fat book hard cover and uh, you know my sister for some reason enjoyed this whole process of dissection and taking people apart and looking at the stuff inside and i was like no 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 i am very have very academic interest in medicine so this book is wonderful because it had these color plates that opened up that folded three times and then you would open it up and you would see the whole anatomy and she she would want to teach me about it. she want to explain so you know using and like yes this much distance is enough i don't want to actually be near a cadaver this is good i like to look at pictures of it and learn about it so and that grace anatomy was the kind of book that if you if you were the sort who read in bed please i mean it would be recommended not to because if it fell on your face you would probably die so it is that thick and the words were tiny and but it was a fascinating and when she was in fourth year the other book i found absolutely fascinating was her they had to study forensic medicine and being a big fan of perry mason books and all the court drama court from drama crime investigations of forensic medicine where the ballistics department where did the bullet come from where did it enter entry hole where did it exit from and all this was actually a science and it was in a book so this was very interesting to me so anyway the thing i want why so uh, that was explains my interest in medicine but why i chose to write a book on medicine for children was something a little deeper than that um i had seen my sister when she had, she turned out she decided to specialize in gynecology obg so she's a gynecologist and i remember when she first graduated or even when she was an intern and uh, you know she the, she would deliver babies and her patients would treat her like a goddess they would just, they would say you gave us our baby and she would always be coming home laden with sweets and biryani and uh, sarees and that grateful patients would give her and i was like okay this is wonderful you do the hard work we get to eat the sweets this is very nice i i like this arrangement uh, but over the course of just a brief 20 25 years i saw that whole arc change it turned 180 degrees until today we have doctors being attacked you know because a patient died doctors being treated as money they that the way we talk about doctors in our own families are not as healers or life givers or you know we talk about our or even experts in a particular science we talk about them i mean i heard around me a lot of talk about they are just cutthroat they are just money making people they practice in so many things and they'll send you for all kinds of tests that you don't need and basically the bottom line is that the corporate hospital has to make money so the whole science of healing and medicine which was so revered as it should be had undergone this complete change in a brief period of 25 years i saw that my sister was working just as hard as she ever did that she cared about her profession and every baby she delivered and every mother as much as she ever did but she was under pressure her back was to the wall now she was so afraid always of you know what will happen and the relatives all militantly waiting outside you know so it had changed a lot and i thought to myself and and also this huge return to western medicine is all rubbish they put toxic stuff in your uh, body and it is indian medicine or 
some alternative traditional of any country, which is the best thing. So people began to talk like that. And I was like, you know, because I knew of the history a little bit, unfortunately, even medical students don't study the history of medicine, which is a great pity. They don't have a subject called the history of medicine because I think young uh, students coming in to study, the, study medicine, these are great inspirational stories for them to keep in mind, just to know that this is how their profession has come to where they are and they have to carry the baton or the torch forward. I think it will be very inspiring if they read the history of medicine, but they don't have it as a subject. Uh, so I felt it was sort of my responsibility even that I should make the healer center stage again in the minds of children, because children are only hearing the negative stuff about doctors and medicine and, and uh, hospitals, uh, which are partly, which may be partly true, of course, but what is getting lost is we are throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We are not celebrating the hardworking doctor who is actually so dedicated to his or her profession. So that's why I decided to write this book on medicine. And it was a fascinating journey for me. Also, I knew a little bit. I knew they were fascinating stories. But, uh, uh, but to find out how, just how fascinating and how much of the globe they spanned and how long this whole thing has gone on, that was, uh, that was a revelation and it was quite amazing for me also. So, uh, so let's start with the, so it feels, you know, the way people talk about, I know, and then what happened was September, 2019, I wrote this book and the way I wrote this book was, oh my God, we have, you know, humanity has overcome every disease and we are at the top of things. And this, uh, you know, this has been um, um, conquered, that has been conquered. And then six months later, only six months later, we slide into this, devastating global pandemic that no one knows what to do about. So that brings, you know, that, so that was like a sort of sobering moment for me. And I said, oh my God, the way I wrote this book, if I had to write it now, how differently I would write it. Uh, however, because I had done the research and written this book, what it also gave me through the pandemic was a feeling of we shall overcome. Because what I understood when I wrote this book was that humanity has gone through so many hardships, so many pandemics in the past, and we have always come through. We have always come through. Somebody somewhere figures out a way to solve a problem, to, to defeat a disease, and then we come, we get over it. So this is so it also gave me hope that you know humans, humans, the human spirit, innovation enterprise, hope, all this will triumph in the end and we will come out okay. And which happened with the quickest development of a vaccine anytime in human history for coronavirus. It was the quickest. We have never been able to develop a vaccine at this speed. And once again, it proved that human, the human spirit conquers all, will triumph in the end. So anyway, so that was the very long introduction to this whole thing. Uh, but I think it was important to give you context about uh, what this book is about. And um, so, so if, if you look at, so what is Western medicine or modern medicine as it's called? It's a very, very, one of the newest sciences. It's not more than 150, 160 years old, depends on what event you use to start uh, marking it as the beginning of modern medicine. But it's a very, very new science. 100 it's 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 startling to think that even 150 180 years ago i mean at least until 150 years ago no one in the world knew what caused disease 
it was still uh, sort of you know maybe just a, i mean there were all kinds of theories including bad air it's bad air that causes disease so you don't be don't go somewhere near rotting food don't go near swamps because that smell and that air that rises from there that is what causes disease uh, and in fact if here's a quiz a little quiz question for all of you you can put it in the chat box or unmute my unmute yourselves and say there is a disease that is named after bad air its name itself indicates bad air what is that disease in latin it means bad air anyone okay i will tell you malaria mal area bad air because that was what people thought caused disease until this french biochemist called louis pasteur came along in 1880 that's not even 150 years ago and proved that it was germs that caused disease nobody had seen the connection between germs and disease i mean it is that recent it it it's it's actually blows your mind to think this is all so new however it wasn't as if everything was gloom also like you know 150 180 years ago the life expectancy for an average human being was 40 years 45 years and now it's 80 even in even in india of course also let us note this that women have longer life expectancy than women anywhere in the world so women walk with pride your bodies are already have made you the superior of the species but uh, also um, what is i say yeah so now even in india where there is so much malnutrition and everything life expectancy average life expectancy is at 65 or something which is huge so there is much celebration all around that modern science modern medicine has made all the, all this you know if you think same thing 150 years ago nobody knew that germs cause disease 180 years ago people would use leeches as a form of therapy i mean this has been going on for centuries and centuries leeches why would if if somebody was ill you would just put a lot of leeches on that person uh, to suck out bad blood because that was thought to be the cause of disease okay and i'll tell you something about leeches a little later but leeches are back they are being upheld as a great therapy as great treatment for certain things and now like very um yeah hygienically they are being bred in the us and japan they have particular uses in medicine and surgery even today so it wasn't all mumbo jumbo the leeches thing there was some element of science to it so and if you had to even in the american civil war where abraham lincoln presided over the uh, the american civil war where the north fought against the south wanting to remove slavery even there Uh, when a soldier was injured in war and his leg needed to be amputated they would do it without anesthesia because anesthesia had not been invented yet or wasn't as widespread yet to be used on war so i tell children you know how easily we throw out modern medicine and say like oh it's all toxic and what we need is actually just ayurveda and stuff like that ayurveda is great ayurveda is great to maintain a healthy body but when something goes wrong with your body there is nothing as good as modern medicine that can come in and help you recover so i say you know uh, we, can you imagine if you lived before modern medicine what kind of life you would have had 
that if you needed an amputation or a surgery, it would have to be done in the absence of an anesthetic. That if you were even slightly, leeches would be thrown on top. For some reason, that gets children more uh, horrified than the pain. Like leeches on top of you, <laughs> that, that is sort of more mind-numbing than any other kind of thing. And, uh, and people would not know that germs, they, had, they were no medicines, there were no cures, there were just like stuff that you would do to sort of maintain it. And if you go a little further back, just another 100 years or 200 years back, in a lot of cultures across the world, disease was thought to be the result of a curse by a demon or a god. And therefore, if you had, and that's why they would do all these rituals and pujas and all to remove the curse, to cure disease, call the shamans, call the witch doctors, they will do a dance, they will do some sorcery, they will speak to the spirits and get you, get the curse lifted. Or, uh, yeah, so these, this was the kind of uh, thinking there was, and this is for physical disease. If you had a mental illness, Today's youngsters embrace mental illness. Everybody wants to be mentally ill. They have these, anything for anything, the excuses, no, no, but I'm not feeling well and I'm, I'm, something is wrong with me. I'm depressed. And I mean, it's widespread right now, including at the Olympics when the uh, star American gymnast, Simone Biles, she walked out because she said, I can't do it because my, my mental health is not okay. But I tell children, if you lived 180 years ago, you know how mental health used to be treated? People didn't know what to do with people acting weird or abnormal. So what they would do is drill holes in your skull to let the evil spirit out because mental illness was thought of as demonic possession. And so they would either do that or they would give you electric shocks to keep you quiet or they'd put you in a padded. That happened until very recently also. Um, probably continues to happen in many parts of the world. Uh, padded cells and um, you know tie them up and and most heartbreakingly they would be put up on show as the mad people and people would be charged a fee to come in and look at them and mock them like like people in a zoo like animals in a zoo so there was no compassion involved where mental illness was there because it wasn't understood and none of these doctors or psycho there were no psychologists but all these people who were treating these people or taking care caretakers, they were not being malicious or mean. They really thought the devil had possessed that person. And therefore one way to treat it or to let it make it go away was to abuse the body of that person. So, you know, so I tell children that this is what it was. So if you're saying that modern medicine is all rubbish, you might want to do a rethink because we live in this 21st century where life, you're, Going, definitely going to live longer than your predecessors did. You're definitely going to have a more disease-free life because we know what causes disease and therefore we know how to prevent it. And you're definitely going to live a more pain-free life because we have medicines that can manage pain. None of this was there even as long, even as 200 years ago. And then how did they used to then amputate or anything? They would give that guy a good shot of alcohol. Or, or something like that, or, or some uh, narcotic, so that he would sort of fade away from consciousness a little bit. And the trouble was, if you gave too much of whatever narcotic, that person may die from that, not from the amputation. Which is why most people, when they said surgery, would flee for their lives, because they say, I'd rather live in, and, you know, than, than to go through this pain. So that was the situation. 
but uh, I wanted to also show you my screen. I wanted to share my screen and show you something. Uh, but let's start with a question. Who is the Indian god of medicine? Gods, god. Unmute, unmute and tell me. Ashwini Kumar. Ashwini yeah, Kumar. the Ashwini Kumars, the twins. One of them is a god of healing and one is the god of medicine. Uh, and they are also supposed to be the, sun, the children of the sun and the clouds. That's right. That is one school of thought considers the Ashwini Kumars the gods of medicine. Who is the... Yeah, Madhavi has put it in the chat box. Who is the god of Ayurveda? In the chat box, Dhanvantari. That's right. So who is Dhanvantari? And also in the Vedic times, anybody knows who was the god of medicine? Vedic, long back, like 3,500 years ago. Before Dhanvantri and before Ashwini Kumars. Ashwinis were there even then in the Vedic times. But there was one god who was called Vaidyanatha. And he was supposed to have this arsenal of pills and potions. You can tell me his modern name also if you want. If you don't know his Vedic name. He continues to be Sushruta. No, no. Sushruta was a real person, not a god. Oh. Agastya Char Charvaka. No, Charaka. Charvaka is a kind of uh, philosophy uh, of uh, Surya Naran. Mm, not quite. So actually Rudra, who we now know as Shiva, used to be also called Vaidyanatha. He was the healer. Anyway, so I, I also find it interesting to put these little nuggets into children's books uh, about medicine because I want them to know that, okay, so if, if, if modern medicine has done all so much for us and made our lives so much better, how did people even survive in times before, right? So the thing is that certain societies were far, far ahead of everybody else. It's not that there was no medicine at all. They were very complex schools of medicine even before. And they sort of fell out of use, went away from the mainstream. And all the original uh, proponents of these uh, died or somehow that, that science itself fell into disuse and we have lost it. And now we are trying to revive it. So it's not as if there was never any signs that humanity has only been suffering all these years. That's also not true. But in the last 150 years, we have seen a great resurgence of good science and uh, uh, you know, medicine and health has improved like anything. So I wanted to show you a picture of Dhanvantri from my screen. Can you see it? Uh, can you see my screen now? It's blank right now. You can see a blank screen? Yeah. Okay, so this is Dhanvantri. He's supposed to have come up during the turning of the ocean. He's the last one to arrive. First, there was all Hala Hala and all the other things, Parijata, all those wonderful things came up. And finally, Dhanvantri comes up and what he's holding in his left upper arm, lower arm, I'm not sure, is the pot of Amrit, which came up uh, from the churning of the ocean. But what Dhanvantri is also holding is, as you can see in his left hand, herbs or plants. Because what Ayurveda is, is, a, is an amazing knowledge of every plant and tree and fruit and leaf and bark and what it can be used for. Along with a great knowledge of metals and uh, minerals that you can add to medicine to make it potent or not. 
Yeah, so this is Danvantri, right? This is one way of depicting Danvantri and he looks like Vishnu because he's considered to be one of the 24 avatars of Vishnu. We know only of Dasha avatar mostly. That has become the popular thing, but actually there were 24 avatars and he is supposed to be one of them. I want you to look at another representation of Danvantri, which you will find a lot in uh, Ayurvedic massage parlors. They also uh, obviously uh, celebrate Danvantri. So I want you to look at this and if you notice something unusual, let me know. Anyone? Actually, I can't see the chat, I think. No, can I? No, I can. Okay. Has anybody put anything? Just uh, unmute and say, otherwise I will give you an... Yeah. Oh, it is the face of a lady. Oh, that's that what I want to tell you. Yeah. Face okay, is like that... body is like a male, male body. Okay. Male okay. body and female face. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't actually notice that. But uh, yeah, I think a lot of Vishnu's avatars are shown like that. I mean, Krishna is also supposed to be. And in Karnataka, we have in the Belur temple is Chenna Keshava, which is like a beautiful Keshava. He's, so many times Vishnu is not described as handsome, but beautiful. So that androgyny, androgyny is very much present in Vishnu. Also in Shiva, of course, when he's Ardhana Arishwara. So that is just that. I want you to look at, so there are the Vishnu things that he's holding, the Shankha and the Chakra. And he's holding Amrit, the pot of Amrit. And what is he holding in his other hand? A potli. A what? A potli. 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 No, yeah. it's not a potli. Surprise, mm -hmm. surprise. It is a jalauka, which means a leech. Oh, okay. okay. So Danvantri also holds a leech in his hand. So leeches are very much part of Ayurveda as well, leech treatment. Uh, yeah, so even though we like to think that science is something very new that has come to us now, everything before was also very scientific only. Right? Now let me look at what else I have here. Ah, okay. So, are you, uh, yeah. So the other thing now, somebody's mentioned Sushruta. So I was saying that some sculptures, even 2000 years ago, were far ahead of the field, uh, not just like as if not in a con if there were like these uh, inter inter civilizational medical Olympics. Three countries, three civilizations would have come out on top at the, in those times, two thousand years ago. Which ones? India. India. Germany. China, maybe China. Not Germany. There was no Germany at all. China. I mean, China. Yes. China. Egypt. Mm, no, Egypt was not so ahead. You like, no. Greece, 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 India, and Roman China. Roman, not yet. Greeks were everything in Western civilization comes from the Greeks. Actually, all Greek thought has influenced everything. So Tibet, Tibet, Tibet. I don't know. I think that would have been considered part of India only. China. Part of this whole landmass. Um, so, okay. India, China, and Greece. Uh, and Cambodia. Cambodia. I don't know. I don't know. They're too small. Uh, I mean, Cambodian civilization, isn't it more like Indians have gone there and spread our civilization? All the Hinduism and the Angkor Wat and all comes from here. I don't know. Ethnically, 
if they had such an ancient civilization themselves or if they achieved any like you know or the thing is with ancient things we can never say for sure maybe we just haven't found what they achieved maybe we haven't interpreted it like even our indus valley civilization the seals we haven't interpreted the script yet and it some southam some some south american country we didn't even we don't know maybe but the known world the known world 2000 years ago was europe africa asia because inca civilization say madam inca civilization ha huh. is they say there is one of the oldest civilization inca inca i know i know but we yeah. didn't know we don't know anything about them until columbus went to america uh, and discovered those two land masses i don't think they are more ancient than 2000 years definitely not they are uh, they might be ancient but not as ancient as they are not counted among the most ancient civilizations in the world egypt yes mesopotamia uh, india all these river based river bank based civilizations uh, india was because indus valley civilization not the vedic civilization so we have come to the vedic civilization now 2000 years ago not 4000 or uh, 5000 years ago so our indus valley was that long ago maybe if we interpret the interpret uh, the indus valley seals or find more artifacts we we'll, maybe they were even more advanced we don't know they were definitely more advanced in city building uh, urban uh, urban craft urban development they were way ahead they had toilets that flushed they had uh, you know sewer sewers and like much better urban planning than we do in india today and they had it 4500 years ago anyway that's a story for another day but um, uh, so greece china and uh, india were far ahead and of course you all know you mentioned it in the chats already the two great medical men of india the great rishis two great ones that we know there must have been so many more but only two their names have survived because they left works uh, they left behind books or compendiums of knowledge uh you know who they were right sushruta and charaka sushruta and charaka exactly and sushruta was the was india's first or at least as far as we know india's first surgeon and uh, charaka was physician so it's also said that there were many charakas charaka was a titular thing it was a it was charaka meant physician and it was all of them with their combined knowledge that put together the charaka samhita could be and there is a sushruta samhita as well which is a compendium of uh, what sushruta discovered about surgery um or used to practice as a surgeon and which which were the two areas in which he was way ahead of the rest of the world in surgery i'm sorry i'm just going to take a sip of my tea if you don't mind in which areas anyone ushanti you're saying something but you're muted i can't hear you plastic surgery yes plastic surgery and bone bone bones no no bone setting no i mean he must have been a good bone setter but ahead of the world abdomen abdomen uh, incisions mm, no heart sorry heart heart no 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 brain surgery transplant no 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 not transplant eyes eyes the eyes the eyes yes 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 
So plastic surgery, of course, it wasn't called plastic surgery, constructive surgery. That's right. Uh, oh, Dr. M. Vasanta. So she, she knows what she's talking about. So yeah, reconstructive surgery. And which two um, body parts did he use to reconstruct a lot? Which had he figured out how to reconstruct? Knee? Knee, no. Nose by, by Nose the... and? No. Skin. Mm, no, no sand. Skin would have come from different parts for the reconstruction. No sand. Back. Think about what else sticks out and is, has a possibility of being injured. Mouth. Nose and ears. Yes, nose and ears. So this was rhinoplasty, what we would call rhinoplasty today. And this is autoplasty, OTO. Uh, so autoplasty. And why do you think 2,000 years ago, an uh, 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 expert genius surgeon decided to figure out these two things, how to reconstruct ears and noses? I mean, there were no film actresses wanting to reconstruct their noses so that they could have better noses. I mean, human vanity would have been there even then, so they, some people might have wanted it. But why would a genius surgeon uh, to, to elevate humanity, because also a rishi, like he was a deeply pious, meditative kind of devout person. Why would he choose the nose and ears to reconstruct? Middle and here, hearing? I suppose hearing. during wars, those would be chopped off easily. Yes, that's right. So those were the things that came under the sword a lot, uh, uh, nose and ears. And not only during wars, it was also a punishment for criminals. Right, or for prisoners of war. It was supposed, I mean, what can be today? We have acid attacks on young girls because they want to disfigure the face. That time, what was institutionalized was again disfiguring the face because what could be worse than that for someone who has to live with that? Because cutting off nose and ears don't actually damage your sense of smell or hearing. You can continue to hear. So you're not permanently damaged in any way, faculty wise, but facially, you are completely ruined. And what's more, every time you walk the streets for the rest of your life, you will be recognized as a criminal or as a prisoner of war who was humiliated. So it was, yeah, exactly. So Mohini says, you know, I wanted to ask you to think about a story in which you have seen this happen. And Shurpanaka in the Ramayana, the first thing Lakshmana does is cut off her nose and ears because that was the regular treatment meted out. Otherwise, he must have been like, why would he... Think of that first thing when somebody's attacking. If somebody's attacking him or his brother or his sister in law, he would probably go for some other part, right? Why would he cut off? Because that was the that was the way it was done. So disfigurement was considered to be more humiliating than anything else. So that's why Sushruta developed this, so that a lot of people could then proceed to live normal lives once their noses and ears were reconstructed. The other thing, and in this particular thing, he was there was nobody in the world who was doing this at that time, so far as we know was eye surgery and in particular cataract surgery. So I want to show you, I'm sure the doctors here know and I'm sure many of you have probably already had cataract surgeries. Um, but uh, so you know what a cataract uh, surgery is about, but this is usually the, uh, the um, PowerPoint presentation I show to children and they don't know what it is at all. They just know that grandparents have had it. Uh, so I want to just show it again. So this is the eye, and we all know the different parts of the eye, etc. We've all studied it in biology in school. 
so I want to ask you what, so the light enters, can you see my uh, cursor on the screen? Yes. So the light enters through here. It goes through the cornea, which is the clear layer on top of the eye, the clear film. And then it, the light is, uh, strikes the lens in the eye. Uh, the lens bends the, bends the rays of light. It proceeds, the bent rays of light proceed through the lens, uh, proceed through the eyeball, which is, uh, contains something, a gel-like substance called vitreous humor, which allows us to keep the shape of the, of the eye round. It keeps the shape. So it proceeds through this gel and on the retina, which is the screen at the back of the eye, the image is formed there. And the, the, uh, so far, it's only an image. It's only when the optic nerve takes that image, that information to the brain and the brain interprets that image as whatever we are seeing, then we see. So it's such a complicated process, this thing of seeing. That's why the ancient Vedas and everything called the eye is just matter, but sight, the faculty of sight, that is a God. There is a God for sight because it cannot explain how all this simple diagrams turn into something where you understand that it's a tree and everything that it has. Okay, it's very difficult. So this is the eye. How is an image formed in the eye? Uh, how do I go to the next? Sorry. So this is how an image is formed in the eye. Again, physics lessons, refract, refraction. Uh, so the candle, you're seeing only the candle flame. The, the rays go there. They, they are refracted, means they are bent by the cornea itself a little bit, bent further as they pass through the lens. And the image is formed at the back in an upside down, ulta. So even that ulta image, the optic nerve takes and the brain figures it out. So what Sushruta was a master at was cataract surgery. What happens during cataract surgery? Now that we know what the eye looks like, what happens? What is the defect that happens in an eye during cataract? Why, why would you need a cataract surgery? The lens okay. becomes... Loss of vision. Vision. Loss of vision. Why? Which part of the eye actually causes this loss of vision? It is the yes. lens. The lens with age becomes hardened, ossified, and then it becomes uh, translucent. Very transparent lens when you're young becomes translucent and then slowly, slowly opaque. So basically light is blocked right here at the lens. Light is blocked here. So all this process cannot happen. So light is blocked there. So now what we do when we have when we have to take a cataract surgery is that they remove the lens, the old lens, the old hardened lens, and they put in a new one, which is made in the lab. And that suddenly everybody has 20-20 vision, perfect vision. Even if you were myopic or anything before, this gift of a new lens allows you to see clearly. But in obviously Sushruta's time, there were no lab-made lenses. And there was no provision of putting in a new lens, etc. But he used to do cataract surgery. So what did he used to do, do you think? Or does anybody know? To make people's lives a little easier. So that they wouldn't have to be so dependent on others. They wouldn't have to go completely blind. So what Sushruta, very interesting. I'll show you in the next slide. So what Sushruta used to do was this. This is the eye. And basically, he used to put an instrument, a sharp instrument into the eye and push the lens out of its slot. Take out the hardened lens. Sorry, can you see? Yeah. So he just pushed the lens out of its slot. When you push the lens out, uh, what happens? So the, imagine 
the lens is not there so instead of bending further here it would just go straight okay so you would you would not get such a sharp image of the object on the retina but you would get an image a blurred image and you would be able to tell you would be able to tell the difference between night and day between colors you would able to you would be able to tell movement somebody is coming towards you or not you would be able to see obstacles like trees or whatever on the way and therefore you would be able to live a somewhat decent life without too much dependence on other people right so that is what sushruta did he, this this whole um, uh, procedure was called couching where you just moved the lens out of its place and you gave the person a fresh lease of life um uh, so uh, the the thing to wonder about what i wondered about is cataract is a disease of old age sushruta 2000 years ago had to develop this kind of surgery over all others this means this meant it was a vital need which means people lived well beyond 75 you know like all the rishis they say 120 130 200 by the way sir it was probably at least they lived to a ripe old age so when we say you know 150 years ago 180 years ago the life expectancy was 40 this is not this has not been the case since ever it has just gone into this because of various other things that have happened and we have forgotten the original ways of living in living without pollution living with peace and calm living with a devotion to a greater being or whatever that allows us to live longer and healthier lives or eating the right kinds of foods simple as that right so uh, so it's very for me it was very interesting to know that to think that people must have lived for very long earlier otherwise why would he have come up with cataract surgery of all things anyway that is our sushruta charaka story another very interesting thing i have only 15 minutes more so i will try to <laughs> rush through uh, and i haven't even crossed 2000 years ago and this is supposed to be like <laughs> over a long period so i'll just mention a few things one is one thing which i felt was very important again for children to know and for all of us to know as well is somehow we think of after your greece china india we think of europe the renaissance in europe as being the giver of all things wise and wonderful to humanity right but if you think that the renaissance in europe started only in the 14th century so that was quite that was only like 600 years ago what happened in between between 2000 years ago and 1400 years ago who was making all the developments who was taking it forward and there's a huge gap there in how history is taught because if you if you take one thread like one history of medicine and go back and follow it you'll realize that uh so the greeks we we'll talk about that so the greeks were huge then the roman empire came in conquered greece became the largest empire and conquered everybody until pax romana the roman peace everything settled down they had most of europe and arabia under them parts of africa okay so like or at least arabia for sure so roman empire uh turkey and greece and all that then what happened was around 396 ad what we used to call ad what's called ce now so around 395 ad the 396 ad the roman empire became so bulky that one emperor couldn't administer the whole thing so it was divided into western roman empire and eastern roman empire the eastern roman empire included greece 
and uh, Turkey and all these parts. And the Western Roman Empire included what we know today as Western Europe, right? And this continued for a while until the Roman Empire fell in some 400 and something, 490 AD or something, the Roman Empire fell. Fell to invading Goths and Visigoths and all the from Northern Europe. Once that happened, um, the West, the Western Roman Empire fell into something that fell into thousand years of absolutely no development, which we call today the Dark Ages. So 1,000 years of nothing, no scholarship, no academics, no uh, invention, no innovation, nothing. They fell in 1,000 years. Can you imagine? 1,000 years, Dark Ages, and no development happened at that time. Then who was furthering the development at that time was the Eastern Roman Empire. So unfortunately, Greece, sorry, Greece fell to the Western Roman Empire. And uh, no, 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 sorry, Greece was Eastern only, sorry, sorry. Greece was Eastern. But in the Western Roman Empire, the Greek texts that were celebrated, Greek texts had everything. So the Greece, Greeks who came before had done all the innovation in philosophy, in science, astronomy, medicine, everything they had done. But Greek wasn't very well understood in the Western Roman Empire. Also, the new overlords who came in, you know how it happens. Any old civilization that they take over from, they will destroy and diss and say that old civilization is absolute rubbish. Everything that they held sacred, we will destroy. And that's how all that knowledge was lost to Western Europe. All the Greek knowledge was lost to Western Europe. However, in Greece itself and in Arabia, that knowledge was kept and was preserved and kept growing until Muhammad the prophet so Islam uh, was founded in about 600 and something, 622 AD is very important year. So Islam was founded and is, the Islamic empire grew and grew, included Africa, a lot of Asia, all of Arabia and what used to be the Eastern Roman Empire. So all that was ruled by the Islamic empire and the Islamic empire, one of their main things, Muhammad, the prophets, one of his main things was to translate the Quran, which was in Arabic into all the other languages spoken by all the other people in the Islamic empire so that they would understand the word of God. Now, this great translation project, once you have all the translators, then you'd give them things to translate. Quran finished. Next. So then all the Greek works of medicine were translated into Arabic. Just as things from Arabic were being translated to other languages, uh, works of literature or science from other languages were being translated into Arabic. And then when the Renaissance started in Western Europe, in Italy, and if you see Italy is like Naples, I mean, Italy, the foot of Italy is very close to Arabia. And that's how the knowledge went back to them. They said, and by this time, Islamic scholars who had all the knowledge of the Greeks, who had all the medical knowledge of the Indians, because the translation project also translated from Sanskrit into Arabic, so they had at their, at their uh, disposal in one of the greatest libraries of that time in, in, uh, in Baghdad called the Abbasid Library, the House of Wisdom. They had all these texts handwritten from every, from every civilization till then, whatever medical development had been made was all available to them. And standing on the shoulders of those books, they went far ahead. So this whole Islamic part of development, they were the greatest astrologer, astronomers, science, architecture, all of that developed in the Islamic empire, which, which lasted for 800 years. And somehow in our history books, 
we are never taught this. That we're not taught much about the Islamic Empire. It's such a pity because they are neighbors to us. We are taught more about Europe and America. We are not taught, our children are not taught about our own neighbors, the Islamic Empire, which use Sanskrit texts and further their own knowledge and further the knowledge of humanity. Anyway, that was one brief thing I wanted to say. Now, I think I want to let you, I want to tell you about anesthesia. How anesthesia was uh, discovered finally. So uh, that by now, Renaissance had come in and Europe was at the cutting edge of everything. Everybody was discovering something in the age of innovation. Basically, what they let go of, why did they come into the Renaissance? What was keeping them down for 1,000 years? So the, what was keeping them down for 1,000 years was a belief that man has no ability of his own. That man is completely subservient to some God who treats us all as his pawns. And he sits there in heaven and judges us and decides what punishments and awards, rewards to give. And we are not capable of anything. Until and but the Renaissance, and this, this thing had been solved way earlier, 3,500 in the Vedas. You say, does God know everything? You even question the, 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 the presence of a, or a existence of an omniscient one who created everything. But Europe was way behind. So they were still thinking that until there is some God only who controls everything, we have no power at all to do anything. Until that changed. And then they went in a pendulum to the other side and left. Now they've left the church itself. Like they're saying, we are everything. So they don't think they've lost the wonder of uh, believing in something magical. Anyway, so um, what were I saying? Yeah, so anyway, this so Renaissance, all scientists, everybody saying, no, we have the power. We can explore. Use your brain. You have the sense of reason. Use your sense of reasoning and logic. Uh, to find out, uh, no time, I'm sorry, Alexandria, I know so much is there to talk about, but I want to bring it quickly into the last 500 years, at least one thing from the last 500 years before we end. So at, uh, as part of the innovation of, uh, of science and everything, uh, and of healing, then they said maybe they, they had just started discovering what were the elements of the atmosphere. They were finally able to separate gases and then, so they said, uh, let us try and figure out if any gas, now that we have separated the gases, can any gas heal disease? Since we think it's bad air that causes disease, is there some good air that can heal it? And so a pneumatic institute was set up in London. And who was in charge of it? Who set it up? Robert Stephenson, the guy who invented the locomotive. So he set it up and there were different, different airs were being tested. Inhale this air, see what happens. That kind of crazy testing where people would test it on themselves. And one of the volunteers or workers there in that pneumatic institute, one of the people who worked there was a very young Humphrey Davy. You might've heard his name. He's also a scientist who discovered many things, Humphrey Davy. And he was very young and he was like, come on, come on, let us, let me try all these gases. So he, every time he would take the, some new gas had been separated, he would take it to his nose and inhale it and see on himself what the effects were which as we can all imagine was pretty dangerous. So once he uh, inhaled carbon monoxide, almost died. Once he inhaled um, nitrous oxide and burnt the, all his uh, insides of his, uh, because it, it combined with the mucus lining, the moisture in the mucus lining became nitric acid and nearly burnt his insides. But he was such a, when he inhaled the carbon monoxide, he was such a scientist that even when he was being carried out on the stretcher to fresh air, he was taking his own pulse and saying, yeah, it is, it is feeble, but I think I will survive. 
you know, so that kind of scientist. And so one then one day when he was fooling around as usual in the pneumatic institute, he inhaled a particular gas and he began to laugh. And he felt so heady. It was such a heady gas and laughed and laughed. And then he would invite all his friends after hours when everybody had locked up and gone, come, come, let's have this gas and let's have fun. And that gas, of course, as we all know, was uh, nitrous, nitrous oxide. oxide. Sorry? Nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide. Yeah. And, mm. you know, funnily, for so long, even after nitrous oxide was discovered, nobody just thought of using it as an anesthetic. People took it on shows in America. They were called, there was nitrous oxide was discovered in London. At the same time, ether was discovered in America, which has the same kind of effect. So there were events called the ether frolics, where people would travel mm. with a cylinder of ether and, you know, they would demonstrate what happens, call up volunteers from the um, audience and have them, you know, wander all about yeah. the stage, falling off in that state of drunkenness kind of thing. That was a big entertainment. Luckily, there were two dentists watching the ether frolics somewhere in America. And they, they noticed that the person who was the volunteer was actually bumping into things cutting himself but he never even stopped to say it's hurting and then they said hey this looks like something we could use in the clinic to extract teeth because even extracting teeth without anesthesia was a terrible a difficult thing so they went and they they tried it the chief dentist he tried it it didn't it worked very well and but he never thought of reporting it he just thought okay i have found a use for it and he was uh, using it and then his partner said come on we need to go and show it to the world so they went to the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. They took an appointment. They said, we will show you this ether works. And somehow it didn't work on that day. So the dentist gave up. Huh? That's a failure. It was a failure. It was, it was a failure. Yeah. Then the other dentist, William Morton, he, he kept trying with it. And he said, I think it works. You know, I, I really want to take another go at it. And this time they called the... I think chief medical superintendent of Harvard or something, because that's also near Boston or somewhere, right? So uh, to, ex to, to remove some lump or something from somebody's neck, from a patient's neck. And he said, no, I've got it figured. I'm, this will work. So everybody came to the MGH. And because it was like a spectator sport, everybody come watch, see what we're doing. Because you see, even then they hadn't figured out it was germs that caused medicine. So in Corona times, it seems so crazy even in pre-corona times it seems crazy that all these people used to crowd around while the surgery was being done putting all their germs into that open wound <laughs> so anyway he gave that person the anesthetic this man was called William Morton this dentist and uh, everybody gathered you know waiting to say what nonsense because last time when it hadn't worked somebody had stood up and said this is all humbug nonsense and they had left the room so this time it happened. It happened successfully. The patient did not cry out. He stayed sleeping throughout. When he woke up, they had stitched him up and they asked him, how did you feel? They said, I feel like some insect has bitten me. And, and then the doctor, the chief surgeon, he turned around and announced to the whole crowd that that gentleman is no humbug. And that was called Anesthesia Day. It was 1846. I forget the date. But that uh, theater, that operation theater in the MGH is today called the Ether Dome. And it's still, ether day. Uh, yeah, the ether day, ether day and ether dome. And ether yeah, I'll just share my screen and show you a picture of that. 
15th october is either day madam okay okay thank you 15th october 15th october uh where is my slide one sec i'll come to it ethan do so i wanted to show you sorry uh these are all i had wanted to speak i didn't have time to hear so you can see how that surgeon is doing the surgery and uh, he's fast asleep because ether is being fed to him through this uh whatever like a uh, uh, thing and i also wanted you to see the ether dome this was how it was so i i just want you to think about how it used to be when they didn't know that germs cause disease surgeons used to um operate in their same old scrubs they would come it would be full of blood and pus and whatever they would hang it up and leave and the next day they would come in their carriages come straight into the ot put on their um, dirty scrubs and begin to work and he was a solo artist there was no anesthetist because uh, there was no anesthesia so he would work by himself and if he dropped his scalpel or something he'd just pick it up and continue working and there would be so many people watching him and that's why if you think about it an operation theater is called an operation theater because it was people used to sit there and watch that's why i wanted to show you how that thing was uh, set up which just seems so crazy and um, leave you with one last story if i may may i yeah. yes okay. uh, if you're okay to wait for five more minutes especially because of corona i wanted to say now that we're all talking about washing hands washing hands washing hands i want to tell you about a a, a gynecologist obstetrician called ignaz semmelweis he was this was also in the 1800s uh, i will just look up my own book and tell you the date correctly but uh, he was working in austria in the vienna general hospital he was hungarian and there were two clinics in the vienna general hospital and one was called the two maternity clinics one was called clinic uh, first clinic and the other one was called second clinic first clinic was manned by fully trained doctors surgeons who had gone through years of study and the second clinic was manned by midwives okay and they would uh, they would beg people to come off the streets there were a lot of people prostitution unwed mothers teenage pregnancies who didn't have a safe place to go or a family to be with when they had their babies so these guys would go and beg them to come to their hospital we will deliver your babies and here's the bonus uh we can even keep your babies after it and you're you're free to go uh walk free after that leave your babies behind we'll take care of them for the rest of the life you can be free again plus it is free of charge so please come in and the reason for that was they wanted their doctors to get experience in delivering babies so this was the best way so people would walk into first clinic second clinic uh they would be put into whichever clinic was free at that time but when ignaz semmelweis came and he was in charge of these two clinics what he realized was that the maternal mortality rate i mean even having a child was a life threatening exercise in those days if you had it at home quietly you might survive but if you came into a hospital because nobody was looking after taking care of germs so you could die from and what used to happen was they were uh getting a disease the maternal mortality rate was like 10 to 15% or some some ridiculous amount of out of every 100 women who had babies 15 would definitely die in childbirth and the reason for death was a disease called puerperal fever which they got after like 3 4 days after they had delivered they would get this develop this fever and die 
Now, what Igna Semmelweis noticed was that the second clinic, which was manned by midwives, had far fewer deaths from pure puerperal fever than first clinic. And this troubled him no end. He said, these are doctors, trained people, and they are losing more uh, patients than the midwives. So there's something that the midwives are doing that we are not. And he went and studied what the midwives are doing. They were doing nothing different because he had trained them. So they were doing exactly as he had said. He just couldn't figure it out until one day his own colleague died of pure peril fever, a man. And everyone, how can a man die of pure peril fever? We thought this was a disease that came to women. And when they investigated further, they found that there was a wound on his arm that had become uh, you know, infected and he had died from that and that was pure peril fever. So how did he get the wound? It was when he was doing a dissection on a corpse. He was in the mortuary. Uh, somebody had died from pure peril fever. So to teach his students, he was also doing a um, uh, dissection to teach them something about how the body looks, how the insides organs look after they've had pure peril fever. And during that dissection, one of his students' scalpels, had, which was, had been inside the body, had poked him. And he had, oh, he had got pure feral fever and died. Now, something dropped, the penny dropped. He had no idea that germs cause disease. But he said, there is something in that body that got transferred to the body of this doctor through the knife. And that is what has killed him. And then he had his moment of enlightenment. The midwives never worked in the mortuary. It was only doctors who worked in the mortuary. And he said, ah, they're bringing something from the mortuary to the delivery room. That is what is causing these deaths. So he said, anyway, at the end of the day, you wash your hands with carbolic acid when you go home to take the smell off, only for the smell, to take the smell off. Why don't you do it every time you come from the mortuary to the delivery room, wash your hands with carbolic acid before you attend to the patients here. And there was such a protest. People said, what? We, and because doctors were considered, we have noble hands, we have clean hands, what do you mean? Our hands are dirty, we are all high class gentlemen, etc. But he said, no, this is the rule, you have to. And once he got them, by that simple expedient of making both the, he said midwives also wash, everybody wash your hands. And once, just by that, the maternal mortality rate dropped from 15% in, in months, in four months, it dropped from 15% or 17%. He had a particularly brutal month, one April. By August, it had dropped to zero. First time anywhere in Europe that the maternal mortality rate was zero, simply by what He had no idea why it worked. He just knew it worked. And unfortunately for him, even after this breakthrough, when he wrote about it the journals and all, they did not accept it. It took many more years before this became a thing that everyone should wash their hands. And now even children know why it's important to wash our hands. Thank you very much. I Thank you so much, Ms. Rupa Pai, uh, for such a lovely session. Thank you very much. Government of India has initiated an elder line toll-free number 14567. Elders or anyone on behalf of elders can call between morning 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. for any questions, queries and support to elderly. Stay tuned to Hiriyaravani for more such programs. Bye for now. Take care.